Welcome to Scrubcast, where we take a closer look at the research happening at Stanford University's Department of Surgery. I'm your host, Rachel Baker. Today, we're speaking with Dr. James Wall. Dr. Wall is an associate professor in the Division of Pediatric Surgery. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Rachel. Well, so what is it about pediatric surgery cutting into small children that brings you joy? Yes, what is it about torturing children? Um, right? It is a number of things. And pediatric surgery wasn't, in fact, my first love or first interest starting really? in medical school. No, I thought I was going to do heart surgery, which was Ooh. kind of cutting edge at the time and quite an exciting field for me. But as I evolved through residency and rotated among many different services, what I came to appreciate about pediatric surgery was it's both upside and downside. And for me, it's a huge upside, which is that it's really an interaction with an entire family, mm. often at a moment of stress, but which 90 plus percent of the time results in a positive impact for that family and for that child. And, and when you can intervene on a child early in life, as you alluded to, as a, as a neonate, even as a fetus in certain occasions when we operate in utero, you really can have an effect uh, on an entire lifetime. And that's incredibly rewarding and meaningful. Oh, that's awesome. I do love that. You wear a bunch of different hats. You are also program director for the biodesign program. Can you tell us how you got involved also into the innovation space? Absolutely. So I did engineering in undergraduate and... It's all starting to make sense. <laughs> yeah, specifically biomedical engineering. So kind of that intersection of healthcare and technology. Okay. And that sparked my interest. However, I did decide to go on to medical school and get trained. When I decided on where I would go for residency, I, I'd say I wasn't particularly strategic, but I was just smart enough to know that the Bay Area was somewhere where a lot of technology was happening, uh, there was great healthcare institutions, and that there probably was some intersection between the two, but I didn't really know. So as I started my residency up at UCSF, I met some you know, wonderful mentors and colleagues, one of which uh, was a chief resident named Mike uh, Gertner. Ah. And Mike was involved with the biodesign program at Stanford. He mm -hmm. introduced me to the program. And, you know, like many things, I think it was a confluence of luck and timing that I was able to do the biodesign fellowship, spend a year there uh, during the professional development years of my residency in 2006. It opened my eyes to what was possible in developing health technologies for healthcare and was really a springboard for me to go on to then use that knowledge and that process in pediatric and maternal health technology, which I think we're also going to talk about today. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a really interesting crossroads. Um, you're not just doing innovation in the surgery and medicine space, but there's this particularly small, special field of pediatric innovation. You are the PI for the UCSF Stanford Pediatric Device Consortium, which is a very long name, but it is pretty self-explanatory. How did it get started? Um, and why do we need a special program for PEDS devices? 
Yeah, so let's let's start with the why, and then I'll talk about how we do it. Okay. So, and it goes back to, I will say, to the early training I had in biodesign, where we learned how to look at things you don't learn in medicine, like market opportunities, dollars available to spend on things, health economic value, FDA regulatory pathways, and how costly and risky those are. So... When we learned about all those things and then started applying them to where technologies could solve unmet needs, I was oblivious to the fact early on that we would almost always filter out pediatric and maternal opportunities due to them being relatively small market sizes or a perception of really high risk. You know, the FDA is going to demand a huge amount of data for us to be able to develop a technology for a child or for a pregnant mother. Mm. And so fast forward to my early academic career, a mentor of mine, Mike Harrison at UCSF, who is credited as being father of fetal surgery, a real true innovator in both technologies and techniques. Mm -hmm. His passion for, for innovation evolved into UCSF getting a grant from the FDA mandated by Congress, lobbied by groups like the American Academy of Pediatrics to address a real underserved market in health technologies. And let me go into that a little bit more. So the why, when you look at health technologies developed specifically for children, and we'll just talk about pediatrics for now. Mm -hmm. If you look at publicly available data, there's been really robust growth in FDA approvals of devices for adults and chronic diseases. So 2008, 30 something devices, 2016, 17, 70 plus devices. So kind of a real natural growth. But when you kind of go next level down and you look at devices that are specifically designed, developed and tested for children for their unique diseases. And remember kids are 25% of the population and 100% Mm -hmm. of the future. (laughs) They're only about between zero and five. So less than a handful of devices per year. And that's really been steady. It hasn't grown. And so there is a need for more devices. Mm -hmm. There are real barriers to developing them. And we as a group decided about 10 years ago, we want to tackle that. We have this amazing training in this program at Stanford in biodesign. Let's take Mm -hmm. all those learnings. That program, by the way, has produced over 50 startups that have developed technologies that are now have treated over 10 million patients. Wow. So really amazing track record. And let's take all that learning and let's start tackling, you know, let's apply it to pediatric and maternal and let's learn what needs to be done differently to have success with success being technologies going from idea to bedside and positively impacting the lives of, you know, pediatric and maternal patients globally. For sure. I tuned into one of your, um, I think you call them like a shark tank. Well, we can't call it that because of <laughs> trademark reasons. Okay. Uh, it's a pitch competition. You can call it that, but we're, okay. It's, okay. it's a, yes, we have an annual pitch competition. The last five years we've had it for pediatric health technologies. And this past year, I'm really proud that we hosted our first maternal pitch competition, which was an enormous success. So that is one of three tiers of support that we provide within our program at Stanford. So I'm happy to dig into that if we want to talk a little bit more about the program and how it worked. 
Yeah. I mean, can you give me an example of a success story? Someone who won the pitch competition, got some seed funding, graduated, and is now taking some fantastic new innovation to market? Yeah, absolutely. So our program at Stanford is called Impact One. And the idea there is that we want to have impact from day one of pregnancy, day one of life. And the Impact One program cornerstone is the uh, partnership with UCSF where we have funding from the FDA. We've additionally received funding from the Cottrell Foundation, from the Cooper family, the Petkoff family, the Klein family, so local philanthropic groups, yeah. uh, as well as recently the Gates Foundation. What we've been able to do with both our partnership and with the program at Stanford is offer three tiers of support to innovators in pediatric and maternal health care. So our first tier is mentorship and coaching. We have every month, we have an innovators forum where anyone globally is welcome to come present and something as early as just a problem all the way up to a fully fleshed out idea with a prototype. We have a group of experts on that call, not just internal to Stanford, but people with technical expertise who have built medical devices, run quality systems. We have venture investors and philanthropists. And in that forum, the innovators are able to present their ideas and if they want to or seek, if they're seeking um, guidance from us, we will provide first year of support, which is coaching. And typically what that is, is really helping them flesh out a development plan. Again, a lot of physician entrepreneurs don't really understand necessarily engineering and business. A lot of business entrepreneurs maybe don't have the insights into healthcare. So We try and help them fill any gaps that they may have through mentorship, coaching, and really building a development plan. The second tier of support we offer, if if they go through that and they've built out a plan that we think has uh, a reasonable chance of success, but probably still have some risks, Mm -hmm. then we try and help them tackle those risks with some directed funding. So small grants focused on, for example, an FDA regulatory consultant who can help them with the strategy or... Uh, money to build a prototype so that they can test it. And then the third t- tier of support is our pitch competition, where we're able to now give away almost uh, half a million dollars a year in seed wow. funding, top prize of $100,000. And that is, again, the next level to kickstart a company. It's typically not enough to go all the way from idea to bedside, but hopefully gives them both exposure as well as funding to move to the next level and then be able to potentially attract outside funding or partnerships with companies to be able to really get all the way to patients. So let me give you a specific example. This was a group of graduate students who had taken the biodesign course uh, Mm -hmm. about 10 years ago, and they had been given the task of looking at what are called CLABSIs or central line bloodstream infections. And they went and looked at the adult hospital first Mm -hmm. and said, you know, this problem's kind of been solved. They said, but we went to the neonatal ICU and it turns out those babies, particularly premature babies who are critically ill, have central lines that go through their umbilical cord. And For serious? mm -hmm. And it turns out we're kind of doing an arts and crafts project where we're taking chunks of non-sterile tape and trying to kind of build these elaborate goalposts or stick the catheters to the side. And the reports are that the infection rates are much higher than adults and the migration or the movement of the lines is, is significantly higher. Mm-hmm. So 
they came to me and I said, hmm, interesting, that's a small market, so we're going to have to be smart about how we develop this and efficient, but I think that we could make a difference here. So there's about 200,000 patients in the U.S. that have umbilical babies that have umbilical lines. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's a modest number of patients. And if we could sell a device for, you know, some reasonable amount of money, that's about a $20 million market. So the $20 million sounds like a lot of money, uh, certainly to me. It yeah. doesn't for venture capitalists, just to be clear. <laughs> so when you think about how you're going to get a, an idea to bedside, you have to think about the business. You have to think about how can this be at the very least sustainable, right? It can't cost you more to build each one of these devices than you get paid for it. You need to figure out a way that you can pay for your quality system, your manufacturing and, and whatnot. And that's just the reality of, of living within a, a capitalist society. And, and so we built out that model and we said, you know, we think we could probably develop a relatively simple, straightforward solution that could get to a sustainable business model. And we think we can do it beginning with grant funding and philanthropic investments, people who are willing to give money and not expect it back to, to help the greater good, and then ultimately make the switch over to taking some private financing and, and building it into a company. So we did a bunch of prototyping on grant funding uh, at Stanford. It was a specific design challenge to umbilical lines in that they come off perpendicular to the body. Seems awkward. Yeah, and so the challenge was you can't completely cover the umbilical cord because it's dying and it can actually become a greenhouse effect and generate more bacteria. So that's a bad thing. So fast forward, a lot of our intellectual property or patents are around ways to ventilate that area. So we've Mm -hmm. created a, you know, kind of a dome system that has ventilation that provides significant securement. We did a lot of this prototyping with a phenomenal engineer named Eric Johnson, who donated a lot of his time, a real kind of industry expert, but who was willing to, to work on this at a discount because he just believed in the mission and, and really can't thank him enough. And so we did all that prototyping. We did a lot of testing within Stanford. We tested umbilical cords, tested bacterial loads, and that was all done within biologic labs. And then mm-hmm. we did some mechanical testing in the engineering building where we looked at the pull forces and how we could optimize the system so that if you, the line gets pulled, it doesn't move out of place. Mm-hmm. And with that kind of data in hand and Probably most importantly, a lot of input from the nurses who are really the front line of the neonatal intensive care unit on mm-hmm. how it fit into their workflow. Definitely. Kind of put all that together and had pretty strong confidence that we could make a difference in this area, that we could decrease migrations and ultimately hope to decrease infections. Mm-hmm. We felt like we were ready. And so we went out on the road. I'd say the first couple of investors. You know, it was tough. We got a lot of no's, and you, you always do. And people said, look, it's just too small a market. It's going to be hard to make money. But ultimately, a, a group out of Mission Bay called MedTech Venture Partners believed in us, made a, a small investment that allowed us to build commercial devices and have a quality system, allowed us to get our first customers, which were mostly NICUs on the West Coast, and allowed us to, to do a first clinical trial, which showed a reduction in migration or movement of catheters of 70%, which was incredible. And with that, we were able to then continue commercialization. We're selling at a price that was, I think, very reasonable, created huge value, but also allowed us to have a margin so that we could have a sustainable business. Mm -hmm. One of the things we struggled with at that point was how do we grow our sales? It's quite Mm -hmm. expensive to bring in a dedicated sales force for a single product. Yeah, And so we started to talk to other companies in the space that had sales forces 
and ultimately a company named Labry came in, really loved the product and acquired it. They now have a, a larger sales force that's getting that product out to NICUs around the country and hopefully around the world. That's fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, well, so I always try to, you know, give a full arc of a story and, you know, the next part would be what's happening next in terms of pediatric innovation. You recently received a grant from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Can you tell us a bit about the grant and what you're going to do with the funds? Yeah, so I think the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is incredibly visionary, of course, in, in how they're thinking about having an impact on global health care. They go through strategic planning on a regular basis and really treat their philanthropic gifts as investments. And they want to see returns, not necessarily in dollars, but in terms of impact. And mm. so they've really brought an incredibly rigorous process to it. Part of their strategic planning recently highlighted that there's an opportunity to potentially invest more in medical devices as opposed to vaccines and, and biotherapies. And so they came to Stanford on sort of a fact-finding mission. We ultimately met with them and we really identified an opportunity for us to provide fellowship-trained biodesign fellows. So mm -hmm. individuals who have technical medical backgrounds, but have really understood, learned this rigorous process for identifying unmet needs and inventing and building development plans for kind of the full product life cycle, again, from idea to bedside. Mm -hmm. And the Gates Foundation has a strong focus on low and middle income countries. And so the other component that um, I haven't told you is that the Biodesign program has over the past 20 years built and stood up biodesign-like programs around the world. One of our first and earliest collaborations was called Stanford India Biodesign. And so we, as a organization, partnered with one of the IITs and with the Ames Hospital, which is one mm -hmm. of the largest hospitals in the world, in Delhi, and really built a, a biodesign program in India to train in-country innovators on how to apply the process to their unique needs. So all that comes together as Gates identifies India as a great opportunity. They really want to focus on maternal innovation. And so we put a proposal into them that we would take biodesign trained fellows, have them go to India, understand unmet needs in maternal health care, bring those back, invent solutions, work on prototypes using the resources of Stanford, and then go back in country to understand how to develop them and get them out to the, the population. So really excited that we're kicking that off this year, we already have our first fellow, Mohit Singala, who has a PhD in uh, biomedical engineering and robotics. He's developed products in sub-Saharan Africa. He is incredibly dedicated to global impact, and he's going to be starting his needs-finding process in-country in India in the next couple of months. Fantastic. Well, I look forward to seeing what he comes up with. We're starting actually something new on the podcast. I was chatting with my friends over at the GSB and they had this idea of asking everyone the same two questions. So the first question is, who is a surgeon you admire and why? I have to, there's so many, um, <laughs> there's so many, but I have to say Michael Harrison, Dr. Harrison was a mentor of mine at UCSF. We continue to work together on the 
UCSF Stanford Pediatric Device Consortium. And what I admire about Dr. Harrison is his unfettered optimism for innovation. He imagined the idea of operating on a fetus, which Mm. was unimaginable to almost everybody on this planet. He had the scientific and engineering capabilities to work through all the challenges, figure it out, do all the testing needed to do it, pull it off, have it be successful, and now have it be you know, a growing area of surgical intervention. And he did it always with a positive attitude and with an eye to improving the lives of, of kids. And I just can't imagine a better mentor than him. Amazing. Second question is, the best advice you received in 10 words or less? It's a hard one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it two words. And Ooh. I think it still, it distills down so many pieces of advice over the years, but I'm going to say be present. Ooh, I love that. And I think it means so many things across so many different areas, yeah. but be present for patients, be willing to take the extra few minutes, be present for your family and be present when a young student comes to you with a crazy idea because you never know which one's going to work out. This has been a fantastic, inspiring conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Rachel. And that brings us to the end of another episode. If you like Scrubcast, we hope you'll tell your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Scrubcast is a production of Stanford University's Department of Surgery. Today's episode was produced by Rachel Baker. The music is by Midnight Rounds. And our chair is Dr. Mary Hahn.